Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. I'm uh, working remotely uh, again this week, so I apologize ahead of time to the listeners for the audio quality. Yeah, we should be back to normal uh, next week, so we should be back on our normal mics with our normal format. So uh, I'll start here, Matt, by just taking the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 11th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 1.91% for the month and up 3.29% for the year. The Dow up 4.76% for the month and down 2.82% for the year. The NASDAQ up 0.35% for the month and up 20.17% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 6.46% for the month and down 5.31% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up 2.77% for the month and down 5.49% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.11%. The two-year Treasury currently sitting at 0.15% and the 10-year yield sitting at 0.68%. So this week, I think the major news, Matt, um, was that Trump signed an executive order extending unemployment benefits of an extra $400 per week until December as Congress couldn't really come to reach a deal. Um, yep. So that was probably the biggest thing in the news cycle other than U.S.-China spat continuing to escalate, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, the July jobs figure came out last Friday, and there was 1.8 million jobs added in July, which was a good number. Mm-hmm. Um, unemployment rate dropped from 11.1% in June to 10.2% at the end of July, so that number keeps moving in the right direction. Um, a third of the job growth came from leisure and hospitality sector, so that's positive that people are starting to hire back in those industries. Um, total continuous unemployment claims ended the month at 16.6 million people. And then finally, um, what I talked about earlier, the U.S.-China spat continues to escalate with the Trump administration banning WeChat along with TikTok, supposedly here in the U.S., but there are talks of Apple or Microsoft buying TikTok, so we'll continue to watch that. Um, but then again, a couple days ago, China imposed sanctions on 11 U.S. citizens, including legislators, on Monday in response to the U.S. imposition of sanctions on 11 Hong Kong and Chinese officials accused of curtailing political freedoms in the former British colony. Um, among the people targeted in the U.S. were Senators Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, and Pat Toomey. 
along with Representative Chris Smith, as well as individuals at nonprofit and rights groups uh, who have been pretty critical of what's been going on in Hong Kong. Um, So that's kind of the major headlines from the week, but I don't think any one of those have really particularly drove any moves in the market so far, Matt. It's just my opinion, though. I would agree with that statement. You know, I think it's uh, kind of important to kind of watch this uh, U.S.-China spat um, because I'm seeing it behind the scenes beginning to, to boil. And I think that the Chinese could be opportunistic uh, as we get closer to the election. You know, they have um, amassed uh, some military and training exercises around uh, Taiwan. So that's looking interesting. So it is something that I think uh, we should at least pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I'll throw it back in your court here, Matt, and let you start with uh, some things that caught your eye from the week. Yeah, I know. It was a good week. So uh, first piece I have for the listeners, Mark, has to do with uh, the New York Federal Reserve. So the New York Federal Reserve released an update on consumer credit on August 6th. At that time, on a non-seasonally adjusted basis, total outstanding debt fell for the first time since 2014, and it was led by an 8.5% sequential drop in credit card debt outstanding. Massive number, Mark. That's huge. The other standout was mortgages, because total originate mortgage debt was the highest on record thanks to massive refinancing activity. Probably no surprise to most people. What was interesting to me was the average credit score of those refinancing. It was a big number. 784 was the average credit score for someone refining their mortgage. Wow, that's pretty big. Pretty big, huh? Well, those are two, those are kind of two bright spots, I think. And, you know, with what's going on right now that we can take away that people are, you know, taking charge of their finances, paying down debt, refinancing if they can, um, you know, just doing everything they can to increase their, their credit score. I mean, it's kind of sad that, you know, we have to have an event like this for people to take action on these things. And, you know, I say this, I feel like every episode, but I think that we can do a better job as an industry to kind of get people more prepared for situations like this, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm happy that this, you know, that people are doing the right thing, it looks like, from uh, the research you shared. Yeah, I mean, I remember going back on the podcast, uh, you know, pre-COVID when, you know, the market was really running into the end of last year. And, you know, we were making comments like, remember, listeners, the market can go down, Right. And um, just along that framework, having a emergency fund set up, right? Just the basics. And that's why I love that you always bring in the financial planning topic of the week to try to cover some of those uh, areas. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Because there's a lot of easy things that people can do that shouldn't take them much time that, you know, can, can end up making a big difference. And I guess the last comment I'll make about the, the notes that you said is it, it's kind of almost backwards with what's happening, right? So outstanding debt fell from the first time since 2014 with historically low interest rates. And you would think that with rates this low, people would be borrowing more. And when rates increase, people would be, you know, scurrying to pay that off. But you know, right now it's, uh, it's the opposite. It is. It just tells you that, um, I think obviously during COVID, which this data comes from, it shows you that people were not spending much at that time and they were redirecting, um, 
you know, their earnings or their income coming in the door. And to right. kind of prove that point here in a minute, I have some consumer spending data I'm going to share with listeners from Chase Bank. So I think I'll be able to, um, to loop that back around if that makes sense. Okay. All right. The next piece that I have uh, is from Bespoke. This is going to be a good one, Mark. Historical data of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Performance under various U.S. presidents since 1900. Okay, so uh, before I summarize the data, Bespoke, Mark, had some good comments I would like to share with you and listeners. Now I'm going to quote, quote, while historical returns of the market under different political parties receives a lot of attention, its impact is a bit overrated. A president's policies can have an impact on the performance of stocks in specific industries, but even though it is considered the most powerful position in the world, not even the president is big enough to fully steer the U.S. or even global economy. More often than not, presidents deal with the hand they're dealt rather than acting as the dealer themselves. thought that was interesting. Now, uh, to summarize this data, this uh, chart shows every U.S. president since 1900, uh, what political party they're associated with, and what their annualized return of the Dow Jones Industrial Average was during their um, leadership. So you ready for this, Mark? The average Republican return, 3.5% annualized. Average Democratic return, 6.7%. Now to a certain extent, the data is a little skewed. So the data is skewed because it shows time periods of a Democratic president, such as FDR, where during his uh, presidency, um, which was a very long time, uh, the market uh, annualized 9.3%. Well, a lot of that was the market making up all the hits of the uh, 29 crash, right? Right, right. Another, another example is Obama. Obama averaged 12.1%. Well, you know, he came into office in the beginning of 09. And so right after the financial crisis, the market came back, took several years, of course. Mm-hmm. So it could be skewed to a certain extent um, as some of the Democratic presidents kind of took over and enjoyed that economic recovery. But you can't go against the facts that um, the narrative of, well, a Democratic president is going to make the market bad because they want higher taxes or whatever the narrative is, is not necessarily backed up by the data. you have any comments, Mark? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at like uh, Calvin Coolidge, his, he was a Republican. His annualized return was 25.5% in office. Um, Reagan, his annualized return was 11.3%. He was a Republican. So it's, you know, it just goes back to the fact that you can't let your political views get in the way of what's going on with the markets and investing. Um, and the other thing is kind of that you alluded to, you know, regardless of who wins this election, in my opinion, the, you know, the federal reserve is not going to change what they're doing. Right. I mean, tax rates could possibly change, but you know, we're at, a point where the Federal Reserve is doing whatever they possibly can to, you know, I don't want to say prop the market up, but maximize full employment and, um, you know, control interest rates. So there's a lot 
else that goes into how markets perform other than who holds the presidency and what party controls Congress. And I think that's what you need to take away from this chart, which is going to be in our show notes. So if you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, hover over the podcast tab and click show notes, you'll be able to see this chart. But I think that's the biggest takeaway, Matt, is that, you know, you go back and you can try to figure out what was going on during those four years or those eight years that someone had the presidency. And, you know, this is one of those things where people could say this time is different, but it's just like, you know, you can't just blame one person or one party for what happens in the stock market. I don't think there's too many moving parts in it. So, you know, I think, again, the biggest takeaway from this is, you know, put your political views aside and, you know, stick to your plan that you develop to help you reach your goals towards retirement. Couldn't have said it better, Mark. I absolutely agree. You know, and we've seen this in real time within our practice um, with, certain clients who are very passionate on one side or the other, depending upon who's in the presidency. And if, again, if you let that stuff, you know, cloud your longer term plan, I think it's going to hurt you. And I, yeah. I see it. I've seen it. All right. Next piece of data I would like to share with listeners. It's a data point on recent consumer spending from Chase Bank. Okay. okay. So um, several minutes ago, we talked about how people have been paying down credit card debt, right? So via JP Morgan Chase data, they analyzed consumer card spending, so debit and credit, and it goes back to show the level pre-COVID in, uh, in, in February. And if you look at it, it bottomed out right at the end of March, similar to where the market bottomed out. And at that time, on average, from their data, consumer card spending dropped about 40% from the pre-COVID peak. And right now, it has recovered to being down 10% on average spending from the pre-COVID peak. However, I want to acknowledge that it's been at this level now stagnant since June. So as consumer spending recovered from the end of March to June, we are not continuing to see that recover. It's kind of stagnated at this level. And I think, in my opinion, that has to do with the um, continued travel restrictions that several of these states have marked. And I think that uh, in addition to some of the protests in some of these bigger cities, people are not getting out. And I think that's why you're seeing consumer spending stagnate over the past two months. you have any comments you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Because if you go back up to what you said, um, the first thing that we talked about, about total outstanding debt falling, um, you know, this data makes makes sense that, you know, consumer card spending has not been going up since June. So I think it's, I think it's interesting, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, with the quote unquote second wave, if you want to call it that, that we got a few weeks back, you know, this kind of all jives together and makes sense. There you go. I'll send it back to you, Mark, uh, for anything you'd like to share with listeners. Yeah, this one um, that I have is from the Treasury Department, and it's about the 10-year Treasury yield in the U.S., or the 10-year Treasury note. So um, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note closed at 0.51% last Tuesday, August 4th of 2020, within 0.51% 
0.013 percentage points of its all-time record low close of 0.501% from March 9th of 2020. So again, I just wanted to bring this up because you know people cannot get away, especially if they're depending on income for retirement, they can't get away with just socking their money into treasury uh, bonds right now. And I think this just reiterates our point that you know, money needs to keep flowing into areas where people are going to be able to get a return. And the fixed income market, at least the treasury market right now, is just not going to do it. So until we see yields come up significantly, um, you know, in my opinion, Matt, I think that there's nowhere else to go unless this money flows back into the stock market because, you know, you can generate more income on the current yield in the market than you can investing in treasuries right now. Absolutely. You know, we've been highlighting this, uh, this topic, i.e. trend, for months now. And I don't see it going away anytime soon, sir. I mean, you know, when, when people say to us, man, there's just a big difference between the stock market and my local economy, what I'm seeing, and we've highlighted some of the reasons why. And this is another biggie. You know, there's just a lack of investment alternatives and money's flowing into stocks for people that have longer term time horizons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that one out. The second thing I had was from the Center for, um, or excuse me, the Center for Retirement Research. And the quote was this, an estimated 55% of working age households today are not saving enough money before retirement to allow them to maintain their current standard of living into their retirement years. That's a big number. And, you know, I have my I guess problems with surveys because I, I don't I don't know who these people are that they're surveying. I've never been surveyed for anything, so I, I wonder <laughs> I wonder who they're surveying for this. But um, if this is an accurate number, that's pretty scary, Matt. I mean, I just wish that you know I could I could wave a magic wand or come up with something that wouldn't put people in this type of a position because, you know, you work your butt off so hard for 30, 35, 40 years. And by the time you're in your seventies, the last thing people want to do is continue to work full time. I would say, and I, and I don't want to lump everyone into the same, the same boat, but I mean, that that's a big number that 55% of working age households aren't saving enough to keep up with their standard of living. Um, you know, with, Social Security in the future potentially changing. I don't know if it's going to or not, um, but you know we need to tackle this problem now that to get more people to save into their employer-sponsored retirement plans. And I think over the past couple of years, uh, companies have done a good job with auto enrollment. That you know employees have to opt out of the retirement plan for them not to contribute. But I think we need to keep this train going to to get this fifty-five percent number way lower. Yeah. Um, to build on that, you're not going to believe this. Yesterday, I was reading a research piece and it quoted Vanguard on their auto enrollment statistics. So uh, 401k plans that had Vanguard as a custodian, they looked at uh, how many people opted out of the auto enrollment and it was a lot lower than I ever thought it would be. Their statistic over the past year only indicated 7% of people opted out of the auto enrollment. Can you believe that, Mark? Yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, that shows that it works, right? So, I think, it works. 
Yeah. I think that, you know, we need to keep innovating and doing things like that. Um, and for people that work for someone that, you know, they don't have benefits or they're only part time, I think, you know, having some sort of, you know, state sponsored plan, kind of like, um, what teachers have with STRS or PERS or, you know, something that, you know, people can, people can have a retirement plan and defer into if they choose, if they don't have an option through their employer, I think something like that would be, you know, hugely beneficial or they get, you know, they get, you know, $10,000 or $15,000 that are put in an IRA, you know, that they can't touch until they're say 59 and a half or 60 or 65, that they can at least, you know, have some skin in the game and, and some say in what their retirement's going to look like down the road. Again, I, I don't know what that would look like coming from, you know, the states or the federal government, but I think it's at least worth exploring. I absolutely agree on top of the fact that longevity these days and life expectancies continuing to rise, it's becoming even more and more important. Right, right. Um, but yeah, okay, so that's all I had. Uh, I'll turn it over to you for the financial planning topic of the week, and then we have a question from a listener. All right, sir. So, uh, listeners, this is my second time ever uh, producing <laughs> the financial planning topic of the week section of the podcast. So, it is quite a proud moment for me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing back uh, an article from 2017. And the reason I'm doing that is I saw somebody post a statistic about how fortunes going through multiple generations, how long that money lasts as it goes through the different generations. Well, I needed to back that up with actual statistics, right, Mark? Mm -hmm. so I had to dig around and find the actual original article that was back from 2017. And it was produced by MarketWatch. And the title of the article is, Here's Why 90% of Rich People Squander Their Fortunes. Okay? So I dug down into it, and here's what it said. About 7 in 10 wealthy families lose their fortune by the second generation, according to a study of more than 3,200 high net worth families by the Williams Group, it's a, it's a consultant group, by the third generation mark, that number jumps to 90%, 90%, okay? So Michael Cole, he's the president of Ascent Private Capital Management um, at U.S. Bank has worked with clients with over 75 million of assets or more for decades now. And he says he knows why. He says, quote, it's often because of failures in trust and communication between family members, he says. He goes on to say, wealth often breaks down family trust and relationships. I totally believe that. Because a lot of times we see some of our older clients who just really don't want to tell their kids what they have and then after the fact, you know, the family has to pick up the pieces, right? So um, specifically, Cole, who has a book out titled More Than Money, says he believes that about 60% of the wealth um, is due to a lack of trust and communication. So he thinks that's the biggest reason why um, it doesn't last when it passes down to generations. He thinks 25% of the uh, reason is to a lack of preparation for how to handle the money. 10% to a lack of shared vision about family goals around money. And of course, he said bad investment and financial decisions tie into all of those, of course. Okay. So he goes on and says, one big issue is that many people feel 
that money is a taboo topic to talk about. He had one client who lived very simple and amassed roughly a $100 million fortune uh, when he was going to give his three daughters. He hadn't told them a thing about it, and after he died, there was a feeding frenzy, he says, of people wanting things from the estate. They were never prepared for it, okay? Um, a couple more things I want to throw out there. He says, often, too, the second and third generations who have been raised wealthy and thus much differently than the person who made the money to begin with behave differently, and that hurts the family fortune. The people who created the wealth were often obsessive. Russ Prince, president of a wealth research and consulting firm, Prince & Associates. He goes on to say, but their kids, they're not usually as hungry. So, um, you know, whatever the reasons for fortunes getting squandered, Cole says a number of things rich families can do to stay rich. This includes having conversations, determine how the family should manage the money, discussions about the roles of each family member should play, and a shared family mission statement about the money and what it means for their lives. So, Mark, I'll send it back to you right now for initial comments, and I'll give you my two cents next. Yeah, I just think that, and we've touched on this before, that it's such an important conversation that families need to have more often is, you know, if something happens to the parents, how is the estate split up? How is the money split up? Um, I know it's an uncomfortable conversation to have with kids or grandkids, and it's uncomfortable for us to be in the room for that too, but it's something that needs to happen to prevent issues once that day actually comes. Um, you know, it almost goes back to the um, foundation and um, endowment conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about how money that's left to an endowment is supposed to be used for X, Y, and Z, and it's not. You know, these things need to be done, and especially for people that have, you know, a couple million dollars or, you know, 50 or 100 million dollars, there's no excuse not to plan properly for that. They have the money to set up a trust properly and to lay out, you know, how much of the estate is available for kids or grandkids to take. But then there should be clauses in there that, you know, X amount of this money is to go on to the next generation and then the generation after that and after that. And this money needs to stay invested and protected so that, you know, the fortune lasts. I just, especially if you have that much money, there's really no excuse for, you know, estate planning attorneys not to have this lengthy, complex conversation with clients. I don't think, I just don't think that, that, you know, there's an excuse for it. I, there's no other way to say it. Um, yeah, I think for a lot of people, um, talking about these things um, brings up their mortality. And I think there's a lot of people that just avoid this until uh, sometimes it's too late, right? And um, one thing that I know you and I are going to be working on over the next couple of years is an education series for some of our older clients for their kids. And I think that this is going to be a big thing for us to have the ability to go in and assist some of our clients and educate their, their kids on, hey, this is what's going to be happening down the road. This is how you're going to handle this type of money. And I think that's going to be part of us doing our role for our clients. But going back to what you said earlier, this is another area that I think uh, our industry just does not focus enough on with their clients. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it just goes back to, you know, even this too, you have to plan for this, you know, whether you like, like it or not, you know, all of us are going to be off of this earth one, one day or another. And, 
you know, you worked hard for that money. So I think that you should have a say and, and want to have a say in how, how the money is to go. If it's donated 100% to charity or 50% charity and 50% family and friends, um, it's just an important conversation that not enough people have. I agree, sir. I'll send it back to you for our questions. Yeah. So we had a question from Matt this week about stock splits. So Matt asks, with Apple announcing a stock split, in your opinions, do you think there is a significant psychological benefit for such splits for investors? Could you also provide your typical insightful background on what a split is and why companies perform them? You want me to go first? Yeah, sure. I think it's all, you know, marketing and um, I, I, splits to me mean nothing. Um, I think that companies do it to try to make their shares more uh, attractive price points uh, for uh, smaller investors. Um, that's just my two cents. So, um, you know, the way that we manage money it, it makes no difference to me per se, but um, I think it's just a psychological thing. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, I think it is too, because it doesn't, it doesn't, you're not giving more capital to the company per se. And, you know, the investor is going to end up with the same amount of money, just the shares are split. So it's not really a, a, a benefit in terms of dollars for the investor or for the company. But I think it is more of a psychological benefit that, you know, if you only have say a $20,000 account. And for example, Amazon's almost $3,200 per share. You know, you get two shares of Amazon and that makes up a really, really large portion of your account. And we talk about diversification all the time um, that, you know, that might not make sense for a lot of people. But, and I know Amazon's not, they have not split their shares just an FYI, but I'm just using that as an example. Um, so I think it's more psychological than, than anything, Matt, but could you just take a second and explain, you know, what a stock split is and use yeah. just like a phantom example for people to understand? Sure. So we'll do um, XYZ Corporation has, let's just say, you know, 100 shares and it's, and it's, it's priced at $200 per share. If that company were to split the stock two for one then the share count would go up to 200 and the price would go from 200 to 100. So they would right. flip-flop in my example. Right. And again, historically in the past, so the reason companies did this is kind of a marketing play to make their shares more um, able to be purchased by retail investors, more attractive share prices. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm completely agnostic on it. Um, it doesn't matter to me. But I see the psychological effect, right, that it has for certain investors. Well, you know, Apple, in your example, was expensive before, but look at it now. I can now afford that stock. And that's right. what goes into that. And then, yeah. um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and as of last night after the close, Tesla announced that they're doing a five for one uh, stock split. So that's another uh -huh. one that they, they just split their shares as well. Yeah. And so again, you know, and that's uh, one, that's one that that's, I think that's, I mean, this is just my opinion. Again, I'm not recommending the stock, but that's strategic on their part because they, I think they know how hot per se their, their stock is and everyone wants to own Tesla right now. You can just look at it by what it's done on its chart and it's 
gone from 300 earlier in the year to almost 1500. So they want, they want everyone to be able to, to buy that and keep, keep pushing the price higher. That's just my outside opinion. Yeah. You know, obviously we're not going to give any specific stock advice to any of the names. We're using those as just examples because obviously they're in the news right now regarding the split talk. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it's all, you know, marketing and trying to make the shares more attractive, you know, with the whole COVID, you have a lot of, um, you know, people trading short term and playing in the market. And, um, you know, that I think plays into it as well, Mark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So hope we answered your question there, Matt. Let us know if we didn't and we'll try to do a better job next week. Um, but that's all we had for everyone today. Matt, do you have anything else? No, I can just say that uh, my content for the next podcast is going to be a little bit more than usual as I prepare for the next podcast. Just a lot of stuff coming out this week that I thought listeners would enjoy. So listeners, be prepared for a little bit longer than normal podcast next week. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I think it would be fun to do a podcast where we just answer uh, listener questions, Matt. So I'm just going to throw it out there for listeners. If you have questions about anything that we talk about on the show, send us these questions uh, our way because we could do, you know, a whole, you know, 20 minutes or half hour just answering, you know, listener questions. I think that'd be fun and to change it up and, and do something like that. So uh, if anyone does have questions, you can email me at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com and we'll make sure to get those on the podcast at some point. And hopefully we have enough to, uh, to make it a full episode. That would be great. And remember, it doesn't have to be just investment related. It can be financial planning related. It can be in regards to social security, you know, estate planning, risk management. So, you know, think of those questions, listeners, send them on. I think it'd be fun to have a podcast focused on that area. Um, and that's all I have for this week. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to the 58th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Hopefully you all have a great rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.